You know, uh, Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, uh, said one time, there's really only two ways to read the Bible. It's either about you and what you need to do, or it's about God and what he's done. Now, I know that's a little provocative, but it's very important that we understand who the hero of the Bible stories really is. And it's one of the reasons here at Belmont, where so many people have come from church backgrounds, whether they're Christians or not, um, they've been exposed to Christianity, and that sometimes is an impediment to understanding what Christianity really is. Uh, there was a guy a few years ago, David Kinneman, who did a massive survey of people in their 20s and 30s in America who would say self-consciously, I am not a Christian. And one of the shocking results of this study is that among that group, that among that demographic, the majority of those people had had significant contact with Christians, either a close friend or family member. And so while a lot of Christians just think to themselves and say amongst themselves, well, the reason other people aren't Christians is because they just don't know us. In actuality, just the opposite is true. And I think that uh, on a campus like Belmont, one of the most difficult things to do is to reintroduce the real Jesus to people who think they've heard it and it's not relevant to them. And that's going to actually, I hope, tie into what we're going to talk about tonight. Because one of the reasons that people, I think, consider Christianity and then decide that it's not really for them or doesn't really work or doesn't make much sense is precisely this issue that I was talking about. So often it's portrayed and taught, especially to young people, as rededicating your dedications, getting your kind of emotions all fired up at a retreat, coming down, making a commitment, and then trying your best to live it out. And then about a year later, you're ready to try it again. Or there are some churches where you do it every single week. I remember when I first heard about the idea that you needed a personal relationship with Jesus, I'd come from a church background that didn't talk about that kind of thing much at all. Um, and I remember every night for a week asking Jesus into my heart because I wasn't sure that it happened and I didn't know what it was supposed to feel like. And if you think that's weird, well, we can talk about it over coffee. But I think a lot of people have gotten some mixed up ideas about Christianity from Christians. And one of the reasons is because they look at the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, as a bunch of moralistic stories, kind of religious Aesop's fables that tell us how we're supposed to live. And we've even got little songs like Dare to Be a Daniel that contribute to the misunderstanding. But again, as Keller said, I think he's exactly right. There are really only two ways to read the Bible. It's either about you and what you need to do or about God and what he has done. And by looking at the Old Testament, I hope to show you that the Old Testament is not about you and what you need to do. The stories, what God reveals, is primarily designed to help you understand who He is. And that's what this passage is tonight. Now, this is a real explicit passage because in this passage, God actually speaks from a burning bush and reveals His name to Moses, says what He wants to do and why. But I would submit to you that that's not out of character for the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks. And thus the Bible is not, as one textbook says, a record of what God has done and what men thought about it. No, 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 no. The Bible is a record of what God has done. Absolutely, God acts. But it's what God says those acts mean. Do you know the difference? 
It's one thing to say that the Bible is a record of what God did, and then it's what human beings thought about it. Because that means you're free to think whatever you want about it. But when you actually read the stories, you find that, no, that's not what the Bible claims for itself. The Bible claims to be a record of what God did and what God says it means. God is a God who acts and a God who speaks. And he's out to do more than give us cool little religious experiences that we can define any old way we want. Well, let's look at this passage of Scripture, and you'll see, I hope, what I'm talking about. This is while Israel is in slavery in Egypt. We talked last week how Moses tried in his own strength to deliver them. He killed this Egyptian guy that was oppressing some of the Israelites. That ended disastrously. And so we pick up the story now with Moses in the desert. He's 80 years old. It seems that God's plan for him has failed. But verse 23 of Exodus 2 says this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Those are four great verbs. God heard, God remembered God saw and God knew. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why? The bush is not burned. Then the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So there's four Hebrew consonants that we often pronounce Yahweh, though we're not exactly sure what the vowels 
that go with those four consonants are. I am who I am. And he said, God said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. I know that's a long text, so I will try to to go quickly through some of the points here. But what I want you to see is this is not just a passage about something that happened. This passage is full of God speaking about why he's doing what he's doing. And it's so important that we get this. You know, so often we have various questions about why this, why that, why this, why that. What I want to encourage you to do is if you're trying to figure out what Christianity is like, if you're trying to to live and dig deeper into your relationship with God, it's vital that those why questions take you into the who questions. In other words, rather than just always saying, why this, why suffering, why slavery, who? Who is a God who would still come to these people and deliver them through one like Moses who has completely failed? Who is a God like that? Who is a God who would not ever forget the promises that he has made. Not why, but who. And as you dig into this, you see that the who questions are what God wants to talk to us about. It's why all through this passage, he's not just doing stuff. He's using the things he's doing to unveil and reveal for us who he is, what he's like, what he cares about. See, the Bible, the God of the Bible doesn't just act. He speaks And he wants us to know who he is more deeply through what he's doing, and therefore, he tells us what it's about. He doesn't just rescue his people from slavery. He reveals who he is, what he's like through the rescue. So let's look at that. First thing I want us to see is the way God reveals himself in the way that he works. He reveals himself in the way he works. First, he works in his time. Now, two things to note here. Moses is now 80 years old, herding sheep in Midian. This is the one who God had miraculously delivered from the Nile River through a basket. We talked about this last week. Had him raised in Pharaoh's household so that he was well acquainted with all the ways of the Egyptians. And now, this guy who was perfectly poised to be able to speak to Pharaoh to be able to talk with him, maybe even prevail upon his goodwill and their friendship. 
Instead, he kills an Egyptian. The Israelites reject him. They say to him, who's made you a prince and a lord over us? And he escapes out to the desert, and now he's herding sheep, this great deliverer. It seems that God has forgotten. There was a promising start, but Moses has failed to live up to his potential, and God seems to have no backup plan. So we see that God works in his time, and that's what his time usually looks like. It seems hopeless. The king has died even. There's a new pharaoh. There's been regime change, but still nothing's changed for the Israelites. But the story is not over. Why? Again, go back to verse 24. I love it. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Therefore, things were not hopeless. The story was not over because God hears, remembers, sees, and knows. And it's a real contrast with what you had in the last chapter, in chapter 2, where Moses sees, same, same verb, Moses sees an Egyptian oppressing the Israelites, and he tries to do something about it, and he makes a mess of things. God sees, and it's a very different situation. And we see here a wonderful picture of God's intimate care. This is a little side thing, but it's important. When it says that God knows, that last word in verse 25, God knew, it doesn't mean that he's just aware of what's going on. It's actually the same Hebrew word used for Adam knowing Eve in the creation account, right? It's an intimate word. When Adam knew Eve, she conceived, right? This isn't God is just aware of what's going on. It's God is intimately connected relationally to what's going on. That's why I love that call to worship we used in Isaiah 63. I love those verses. In all their distress, he too is distressed. And again, you might be in the middle of suffering and wondering why, 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 and I pray that you have ears to hear. In all their distress, in all your distress, he too is distressed. And I pray that that would provoke you to say, who is a God like this? I'm not saying the why questions are inappropriate, but when they're set inside the who is a God like this questions, it really does change the way you think about him. God is a God of intimate care. But how does he begin to show who he is in the story? Well, the first thing he does is he shows Moses something that doesn't fit his preconceived notions at all. I mean, the story, right? Moses is not used to bushes burning and not being consumed, right? It, the story wants to make sure you get that. I don't know if you've thought, well, people in the Bible, they just believed any old thing. That's what the people in the Bible do. They just believe anything. No. When, Mo, when Mary is told she's going to have a baby, you remember what she says? How can this be? I'm a virgin. Right? She doesn't say, oh, wonderful. Bless me, God. No, she says, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Okay? And that's the same thing here. Moses says, it's sort of nice, the language and the translation, but it's basically like, i got to go over here and see what's going on. What in the world is going on? There's a bush. It's burning, but it's not consumed. And here's what this fascinating picture here is showing us. Spiritual life often begins with a little intrigue, something that doesn't seem to fit the categories, that invites us deeper in. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if 
you're kind of just wanting to check out Christianity, if you're not sure about all this stuff, if you've been a Christian a long time, but you've had, you know, all kinds of questions, and maybe now that you're away from home, it's time to explore some of these things and think on your own. I don't know where you're at, but I know that spiritual life often begins by something intriguing, drawing us in and drawing us in to take a closer look. One of my favorite examples of this, you've heard a guy named C.S. Lewis, right? So there's, a, there's a, a book called A Severe Mercy. Anybody know this book? So a few people may know. It was real popular when I was in college. Basically, A Severe Mercy is about this couple, um, the Van Aukens. Sheldon Van Auken is the, is the man, and then his wife, and about how they came to be friends with, with uh, C.S. Lewis and sort of his circle of friends at Oxford, and how these two people who weren't Christians began to be drawn towards Christ. And then God, um, you know, brought them through some really difficult things. It's a really sad, tragic book, but a, a powerful book you might be interested in. But anyway, there's this great example where Van Auken, Sheldon Van Auken talks about how he was an atheist and how he got drawn into Christianity by some of the people he met at Oxford. And I love the way he says it. Listen to this. He goes, these people, these Christians that we met at Oxford were unlike any that we'd ever met. They were our first friends, close friends. More to the point, perhaps, all five of these people were keen, deeply committed Christians. But we liked them so much that we forgave them for it. <laughs> we began, hardly knowing we were doing it, to revise our opinions, not of Christianity, but of Christians. That had to come first. Our fundamental assumption which we had been pleased to regard as an intelligent insight, had been that all Christians were necessarily stuffy, hidebound, or stupid, people to keep one's distance from. We had kept our distance so successfully indeed that we didn't know anything about Christianity or Christians. Now that assumption soundlessly collapsed. The sheer quality of the Christians we met at Oxford shattered our stereotype, and thenceforward, a reference in a book or a conversation to someone's being a Christian called up an entirely new image. Moreover, the astonishing fact sank home. Our own contemporaries, our own friends, could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christians. Now notice, they were not interested in Christianity. It was when they met Christians that shattered the stereotypes they didn't turn around and be like, oh, great, well, we'll become Christians then. But it, it shattered the stereotype and drew them in and began to revise their understanding of Christianity. That's often how spiritual life begins. And the question tonight is, is God calling you in to take a closer look? Has, has somebody intrigued you? Has something intrigued you? I hope so, but I'm not sure if I believe that it's happened. Because unfortunately, so many Christians, especially in our culture, feel like the first thing they need to tell people is what they're against. And you never get a chance to actually know what really makes them tick. Or they think that everything they believe about Jesus can fit on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. And so they seem trivial. They seem like, I know who these are, these people are, I know what they believe. I hear about it all the time. I see it on bumper stickers when I drive around. I have a friend of mine named Mitch, and uh, I remember years ago I was talk teaching a Sunday school class, 
And I said something about, you know, what must it be like to come back from the dead? Because that's what the Bible says is true of Christians. If you're a Christian, you were dead and you've been made alive. And what does life look like when you've come back from the dead? And then as I remembered, wait, my friend Mitch, when he was in high school, was driving his motorcycle on this dirt road out in the country where there should have been no wires across the road, but there was a wire across the road, and it almost completely decapitated him. It severed both of his vocal cords. He miraculously survived. Not only that, he went on to be a singer, though he sings in quite a raspy little voice. But I remember I, all, this, all of a sudden I was like, wait, Mitch, you literally died and came back again. What is that like? And I, I'll never forget his answer. It was beautiful. He said, Kevin, we've got like five minutes. How could I, how could I possibly begin to tell you what it's like to come back from the dead. And I thought, that's such a beautiful answer. We need more Christians that when you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? They say, I couldn't begin to tell you in five minutes. It, it makes such a difference to everything. I, do you got an hour? Let's sit down and we'll begin to talk about some of the difference it makes. Do people around us experience us as having that kind of depth? Or do they experience us as like little theological parakeets who just repeat what we've heard without thinking about it very much? We need Christians, and I would say particularly at Belmont, you need to know most of the people you know that aren't Christians feel like they have heard it all before. And they're not interested in your testimony. They're interested in people who are real and genuine, thoughtful, who actually listen rather than just listen so that they can get their perspective jammed in there as soon as you take a breath. Can we be those kind of people? Have you met those kind of people? Um, I, I thought of another, another way sometimes that God draws us in. Sometimes he draws us in not just by difficult things, but by really great things. Um, there's this poet, Rossetti, who said, the worst moment for the atheist is when he is really thankful and has nobody to thank. I, I remember, did you guys ever see that movie Once? You guys remember that with Falling? Yeah, right, The Swell Season, do you know that band? So this is fascinating. Wendy and I went and saw them at the Ryman. It was awesome, awesome concert. And what was really interesting is, you know, this guy, he'd been in this band, what, The Shins? Is that the band he was in forever? Yeah, I think so. A anyway, he, this guy had been in this band for 20 years, just, you know, killing himself trying to make it. And all of a sudden, he's, and he's telling this story on stage, he goes, all of a sudden, you know, you work and work and work and work, and you never seem to get anywhere. And then all of a sudden, a friend of yours who's making a little indie movie asks you to write some songs for it. The next thing you know, you're asked to star in it, and all of a sudden, it becomes huge, and now you're playing the Ryman. And, and he's, he's up there, and he's like, you could tell that he wants to be grateful, but he doesn't know who to thank. So all he can say is, he's, he's looking around, he finally goes, effing brilliant. And, and it was just this profound <laughs> moment. No, it's more than that. You're thankful. You realize that you didn't do it. All the stuff you worked for, you know, might have got you to play at the basement, Maybe. But now you're on the stage at the Ryman. And you didn't do anything, really, to get here. And you don't know what to do about that. Sometimes God draws us in that way. But God is always drawing us in. So, has God done anything? Has God said anything that intrigues you? Don't just stuff it. Follow it. Turn aside. Say, I want to see about this bush that's burning but not consumed. What's going on there? And if you're a Christian, maybe we should try to live in a way that would be intriguing. I had a, a great class in seminary on 
hospital counseling, where basically we would just go out onto the floor, meet patients that we'd never met, and ask if they wanted a visit from a chaplain. And the guy that led the class, he's passed away now, but he had this great thing. He'd say, guys, as you go out and you go meet people, no idea where they're coming from spiritually. You're just going to go talk to them. He goes, here's your goal. Just try not to make it more difficult for the next Christian they meet. <laughs> Have that be your goal. Just try not to make it more difficult for the next Christian you meet. And the longer I've been living, the longer I've been talking about Jesus, the more I think that's a pretty, that's a pretty good goal. How can you live in a way that makes it easier for the next person, the next Christian they meet, to say, wow, yeah, you know, I knew that, that person. I knew that she was pretty thoughtful and very respectful in class, but yet she also had her own opinions, and she didn't just get blown about this way and that way. But what makes her tick? It's kind of interesting. Oh, she's a Christian. Huh. I have to think about this. That's the kind of people we want to be. All right, next thing. And I know, I know you know, we're going to go about number seven, eight minutes here, so... Bear with me. Uh, the second thing we see is what God reveals about himself. Now notice, God is the God who speaks first. God is the God who speaks first. God starts this whole thing. Moses is not looking for God. God is looking to come down. Remember, because he heard and he saw, he remembered his covenant, and he cared and he knew. And so he's looking for an opportunity, and he makes his opportunity. God... Again, is the one who speaks. He doesn't just burn. God's not interested in you just having an experience of his burning. He speaks out of the burning because he wants you to know who he is and what he's about. He's the one who speaks. He's the burning fire. Now, throughout the Bible, burning fire is an image for holiness, and it's that way here too because what Moses hears is, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. You're going to die if you're in the presence of God's holiness. You're in grave danger. Unless you think that's just a primitive Old Testament idea, I know a lot of people think that, the verse that says, our God is a consuming fire, is actually in the New Testament. It's in the book of Hebrews, right? And the verses that speak about God covering his people like a mother hen covers uh, her chicks with her wings, that's in the Old Testament. So get rid of the Old Testament mean God, New Testament nice God silliness. You don't have to read the Bible very far before you realize that's that's not how it works. God is a consuming fire, but notice this. He's this burning fire, and yet the bush is not consumed. He doesn't consume the bush. In other words, he's the fire that needs no fuel because he's the self-sufficient one. He's dependent on no one and no thing, but he's the merciful one. Notice, he's the burning bush, the holy one, but he's speaking, and he's speaking to Moses, who by all rights should have, should have been sort of, well, he gave up. Moses gave up all of his privileges, gave up his opportunity to serve God. In other words, Moses doesn't deserve this at all. The holy burning bush voice speaks to Moses, the one who's made an absolute mess of his life. So he's merciful. What a paradox. The merciful one is the burning fire, the one who wants to rescue his people from bondage. And he says that he's the angel of the Lord. Now this is an interesting thing, and we could have like two sermons on just the angel of the Lord, but I'll tell you this. Most theologians would tell you that the angel of the Lord, the best way to understand it, it's somebody who is God, but is also distinct from God. 
And in the Old Testament, it's hard to make sense of that until the coming of Christ. And after the coming of Christ, the one who is like God, but who is God, but who's separate and distinct from God, the Father, the only way to put that together is to say, well, the angel of the Lord must be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. That's what's going on here. Moses doesn't have the categories. Even the Old Testament doesn't have the categories yet. But that's what's going on here. And then he says, I am that I am. Now, there's this interesting suggestion. This might be true. It's, it's possible, as, I, as you read this text, why would this name mean anything to the Israelites? It's possible that the Israelites knew this name. There are some commentators that say that. And so God says to Moses, who doesn't know the name, here's the name. Go tell them this name. But God also tells them, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm the God with a history. I'm the God who's been part of your story all along. I am that I am. And that phrase, basically God is saying, I am free and sovereign and I do what I want. The grammatical structure is actually the same in the Hebrew as when God later says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God is saying, I'm free to do what I want. I'm with you, but I'm not God on a leash. I've heard your cry, and I'm coming to deliver you, but I am that I am. I'm not at your beck and call. I am what I am. He's not God on a leash. And then finally, look at who he comes to work with. Look at Moses. God, one of the ways that you know who God is, is by the kind of people he likes to work with. And this is a great passage for that because he loves to work with those that you would least expect, doesn't he? Take heart. God chooses to work through the weak who need tons of assurance. Are you afraid of what God might call you to do with your life? Take heart. Moses is not the hero of this story. And as we go through the story of Moses this semester, you'll see that over and over and over again. Moses is not the hero of the story. God is. And God encourages him. And look at how he encourages him. Moses said, look, I can't do it. I'm inadequate. And notice what God doesn't say. God does not say, no, 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 don't be so hard on yourself, Moses. You got this. Come on, man, get back up. God doesn't say that at all. God is not a flatterer. What does God say? He does not challenge Moses' self-assessment. Instead, he says, yeah, yeah, but I'm with you. You see the difference? You guys, you guys probably aren't old enough. There was this great Saturday Night Live character, Stuart Smalley. You guys remember, remember him? He was kind of this self-help guru. He had this little TV show, and he would always start his show. There's a little skit on Saturday Night Live. You can look it up on YouTube, I'm sure. And he'd always start. He'd look into the mirror, and he'd talk to himself, do this self-talk, and he'd say, you know, we're going to do a good show today because I'm good enough, and I'm strong enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. And then he'd go try and do his show, and he'd just completely fall apart in insecurity. Right? And that's not what God's asking you to do. It's to sort of look in the mirror and say, well, I'm good enough, and God thinks I'm good enough. That's not what God says. God says, yeah, you've kind of made a mess of things. I'm not going to challenge that. I'm not going to say, quit being so hard on yourself. I'm with you. I'm with you. That's the difference. Moses says, I can't do it. God replies, what about me? What about me? And that's what I want you to hear tonight. What do you think God might be calling you to do that you can't do? And is God saying, what about me? Where do you need to hear that? What about me? 
See, God never calls people who are actually up to the task. He doesn't promise to make Moses strong enough for the task. He says, what about me? I love verse, uh, verse 18 in chapter 3. Look at this. This is almost comical. God says, you're going to go to, the, to, the, to Pharaoh or to the Israelites. They're going to listen to your voice, verse 18. And then you and the elders of Israel are going to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So let us go. Do you know what the Pharaoh is going to say? When the God of the Hebrews, the slaves, says, let them go? Do you understand in this world, gods were all about power. And God says to Moses, yeah, you're going to go up to the most powerful nation in the world who are convinced that their gods are more powerful because you're enslaved and you're supposed to go say to them, the God of the Hebrews says, let us go. But you know what? God isn't interested in impressing Pharaoh at all. Do you know why he says that? Because God knew intimately his people and in all their distress, he too is distressed. God is interested in identifying with his people and their oppression. He's not interested in impressing anybody. God doesn't care to impress Pharaoh. He doesn't care to identify with his enslaved people. And that's what Jesus is all about, guys. When you look at a passage like this, Jesus said, when you read the story of Moses, he said this in, in the Gospel of John, Moses is talking about me. If you want to understand the character of God, God is the one who uses you know, people who've made a mess of their life. God is the one who says, I'm with you to people who have no adequacy whatsoever. God is the one who in his timing, which is often not our timing at all, says now's the time for me to deliver. God is the one who is holy, but who dwells among his people and identifies with his people. This is what Jesus is all about. Everything that God says about himself in this passage is amplified in Jesus. The Gospel of John chapter 1 says that God tabernacled among us. That means he set up his home with us. For an old friend of mine, Scott Rowley, used to say, you know, God moved into the neighborhood. He moved into your neighborhood. He moved into neighborhoods that you wouldn't dream of moving into. And ultimately, God showed that he didn't just identify with these people's distress. He was going to go to the cross to end their distress. Jesus is the least expected one that God ever used. But he accomplished what Moses never could. Jesus is the least expected one God ever used. He was crucified as a criminal. It seemed that he had completely lost. Even his own people turned away and went back to their old lives fishing. But it wasn't the end of the story. Because what you see about God here, that God heard and God saw and God remembered and God knew, is spoken ten times as loud in Jesus. Because in Jesus, God saw, God remembered, and God knew, and God delivered in a way that Moses never could. Let's pray together.